Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. So what I wanted to do is start Footsteps of the Messiah since there's so much going on in the world. We've been talking about it for a while and current events and there's, there's some things I'll mention today. But I, I figured, you know what, I, I need to start Footsteps of the Messiah which is a chronological study of the end times. It's not studying just the book of Revelation. It's bringing in every prophecy into a chronological sequence, which is extremely rare to find. Most people study books of the Bible like Daniel or Revelation, but it's very rare when you harmonize the entire prophetic scenario. But it is good to understand this to get a proper framework to be able to interpret what's going on in the world. And I know you guys are, I'm preaching to the choir because you guys stay on top of current events and stuff like that, but a lot of Christians kind of lose a thread because they don't have a framework to work off of. So when they see us as Americans or Obama getting chummy with Iran, they don't understand the, the theological framework behind that of what that's setting up the Gog and Magog uh, war uh, to come uh, come against Israel. They don't. They see us turning our backs on Israel, but if they don't have a theological framework, they don't understand the implications of Zechariah that Israel will be left by themselves, which is prophetically happening right now. We're turning our backs tonight as we study. You're going to learn about interpretive methods. You're, and I know this might be a little bit boring uh, at first, but hang on. One of the things you have to understand when you're studying prophecy is you have to understand the rules of biblical interpretation as it relates to prophecy. Otherwise, you will really get messed up. A lot of pastors try to attempt prophecy because they're not very educated and they foul it up because they're not using proper hermeneutical skills of interpretive methods. For instance... um, uh, we get our interpretation methods from how Moses presented how we should study prophecy in Genesis. Genesis is your foundation for understanding prophecy. Well, what do you mean? There's 14 prophecies in the book of Genesis that come true in the book of Genesis. What Moses is trying to, to, to do is establish how to interpret prophecy. So when Joseph has his dreams and his vision... That comes true in Joseph's life, doesn't it? You see his parents bowing down and his and his family bowing down in recognition of who Joseph is eventually. That tells you then that it's a literal fulfillment, not an allegorical or spiritual fulfillment, but that what Joseph dreamed literally came true. And then therefore Moses expects us to take that template and apply it to the rest of Scripture. And that's how we study the book of Revelation, Daniel, uh, uh, Micah, Malachi, any of those, Joel, whatever, is we look for how that's interpreted correctly by Moses' antecedent. But that's what happens. It gets messed up. People don't understand that. So tonight what we're going to do is take a little bit of time, and I'll, I'll flush it out a little bit this first hour, of how to use proper hermeneutics. This will help you in your own study of Scripture. You can apply this 
to anything you read, and if you apply these correctly, you will get a, a proper understanding of the text. Okay, so if you got your pa paper, page one on chapter one of the introduction, again, the term footsteps of the Messiah came from the rabbinic idea that when you saw certain things happen prophetically, then the footsteps of the Messiah was coming. That's where the term comes from. But in order to understand it, you've got to know rules of interpretation. So basically on page one, you have the introduction, the rules of interpretation, and there are four basic rules of interpretation. There's more than that, but these rules apply to prophetic genres. Okay, now they are keys to understanding prophetic word. These four rules uh, formulated by Dr. David L. Cooper um, and obviously Ariel Ministries, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, and a lot of guys from Dallas Theological Seminary use these principles. They're really these principles go back to the original way the Jews interpreted the passages in Scripture. And I've told you a little bit about the history of interpretive methods and what happened. And this is important to understand the history. There were two schools of interpretation. Antioch in Turkey, we would consider that modern-day Turkey, and the other one was Alexandria, Egypt. So when Christianity, the first 200 years, 300 years, is going, those are the two schools of interpretation. The school of, uh, of, of Antioch of Syria in Turkey, this is where Paul was, this is where John was. John, uh, John was the pastor of Ephesus for a long time. They took the scriptures in a literal, consistent, historical, cultural sense. And that's what that school taught. So anyone that came from that school understood you took the scriptures literally. The Alexandria school that was in Egypt was influenced by Greek thought. The Greeks moved from Greece and they settled into Alexandria, Egypt. They brought with it this idea of allegorization and spiritualization. This is picked up by Philo the Jew, uh, and then eventually is passed on to uh, Clement of Alexandria, and then from Clement to Alexandria, it went to Origen, and then from Origen, it went to Augustine. And Augustine then carried this interpretive method of allegorization and, and spiritualization into the Catholic Church. Well, what does that mean? What's the implications? The a school of Alexandria won the day. They were the liberals of the day. They won the interpretive battle. And when it ceased power with the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire, that became the interpretive method for, I don't know, uh, 1,200 years or something like that until the Reformation. So what ended up happening is the literal way of interpreting prophecy got buried under the Catholic Church for centuries. And this is why it has just simply revived in the last few hundred years due to the Protestant Reformation, but then getting away even from the Reformers, because they still interpreted prophecy in an allegorical way, and getting away further away from them, and, and then applying the literal, grammatical, historical, interpretive method to prophecy. And that came with the Plymouth Brethren, guys like uh, uh, Darby, Mead in 16, early 1600s was another guy who started taking literal prophecy uh, at face value. And that's why the accusation now is, well, you guys who interpret literally, uh, this is your, your Johnny come lately. And we're not. What we're saying is the way we're interpreting prophecy goes back to the original Syria, uh, uh, school in Syria of Antioch that got rediscovered.
So that's kind of a little broad, a little history that, that helps us understand why things happen. It's simply rediscovering what the, the Jewish method was originally. Okay, so with that being said, number one, the first law is the golden rule of interpretation. And this is how we, we understand scripture when we read it. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word as its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. So you read the scriptures as you're reading the newspaper. You don't sit there and read it and say, well, i got to have this explained to me because I don't know what all means or I don't know what, what Israel means or I don't know this or I don't know that and I have to be dependent on a pastor. No, you don't. You're supposed to read it in the plain sense of the meaning of the word. Okay, so that's the basic. Why is that such a big issue? Well, I can tell you. When they brought in these allegorizations and, and, and spiritualizations to prophecy, they gave, they started reading into the text stuff that wasn't fair. I'll give you an example. Um, the woman in Revelation chapter 12, um, she has 12 stars, she has a sun and the moon, and she gives birth to the Messiah. How do you think the Roman Catholic Church interpreted that? It's Mary. But that's them putting their own junk into the text and telling you that when you read it on a face value, it's not doesn't mean that. It means it's Mary. Because if you read it on face value, what does John expect you to know? He expects you to know that you know your Old Testament. I mean, most of I would say every verse, almost every verse, I would say this, except for Revelation twenty one and twenty two, every verse up to chapter twenty has a reference to the Old Testament. So John, when he writes it expects you to know the Old Testament. Okay, so if I'm reading Revelation 12, and I see a woman who has 12 stars and sun and a moon and gives birth to the Messiah, instantly I should think, oh my goodness, I am seeing Joseph's dream. That's how I should understand it. What, what do you mean? Well, what did Joseph's dream include? That his mom and dad would bow down to him, the sun and the moon, and the stars would bow down to him, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Joseph's dream. So then, therefore, when I see a woman who gives birth to the Messiah, I automatically know this is Joseph's dream. It's referring to Israel. Israel gave birth to the Messiah. And then the woman, if you continue to read it, the woman is then taken care of in the desert for three and a half years. Well, when did Mary get taken care of for three and a half years? Never. But then the Catholic Church or whoever allegorizes that will say, well, it's this and that and yada, yada, yada. Okay. But obviously, if you take it literal, you'll understand that Israel will be taken care of because of the Old Testament passage when they're running from the Antichrist. And so that's what makes sense. So you take it in the literal sense of what it means and you reference it back to the Old Testament. This is why this is extremely important because number one, okay, you and I are saying, well, we don't deal with the Catholic Church anymore. Okay, but we're dealing with replacement theology now. In Protestantism, as you know, almost 70% of the churches, 67, somewhere in that neighborhood, of the churches teach a replacement theology. 
that the church is out now Israel, or the church has replaced Israel, or the church is the people of God. Therefore, that woman in the text can mean anything. Because in their minds, a lot of idealists or historicists, they don't see the book of Revelation as having a future fulfillment. They say it's it's either uh, happening now, or it happened before 70 AD, like a preterist, um, like a Hank Hennegraff or someone like that, or Gary DeMar, or like an Al Mohler who says that it, the book of Revelation is happening now uh, in history. Well, my question is this. Who is the woman? Who is the Antichrist? Well, they'll say, you can't take that literally. It's apocalyptic literature. The Antichrist is just all evil against the church. Oh, okay. But it's saying the Antichrist will, will make you buy or sell with his mark. Well, it's a spiritual mark, you know, you gotta understand it. You see the game they play? The game they play is they won't take it in the literal sense. That's what we're up against right now. And that's the fight we're having. So, guess what they do to you? Instead of dealing with the text, they will do an ad hominem attack. And they will attack you personally, saying, well, you're just a bunch of hayseeds. You don't know what you're talking about. This is highbrow stuff. You know why they say that? Because they said it to the followers of John and Paul. They said, like Papias, who, who had a premillennial view, because he was a disciple of Paul and John. He's the only church father we know that had, that had John and Paul as his disciple, uh, or as his master teacher. Papias was looked down on by the school of Alexandria, and they said, he's a man of little wit. Because in Alexandria, they had this allegorical spiritualization of the end times, and, and Papias just took it for what it said. He followed what John and Paul taught him. And so today, they will look down and talk to you, and, and talk down to you and say, you just have a faulty hermeneutic. You just don't understand things. You're, you're simple-minded. It means more than that. You've got to go to the spiritual level. Don't ever fall for that. The way the Jewish proper, uh, the, the way Jews interpret things properly is take it literally. Okay, so that's the golden rule of interpretation. Uh, it says, uh, one thing I'll, I'll bring out on letter D on there, while the Bible does use many symbols, it is consistent in its usage of symbols, like I mentioned about the woman. Go back to letter C. Literal or normal interpretation does not rule out figures of speech. So we're not taking everything wooden literally, but even these have a literal background. Okay, so when you see the term dragon or, or the serpent, you know that's a figure of speech, but you also know what's the literal meaning behind that. It's Satan. So when the Bible uses that, uh, you know it instantly, oh, it's a figure of speech, but it's referring to a literal, well, Satan himself. Um, when you see in prophecy the term stone, that's a figure of speech always for the Messiah. The Messiah is always called the stone in Scripture. And you'll see that in Daniel and other passages. Uh, when you see the term mountain, that's a figure of speech in most prophetic scenarios. And mountain always refers to kingdoms. Kingdoms. Now this is important because a lot of people will mess up Revelation chapter 17 and they'll see seven mountains and they'll say, see, that's the Catholic Church or the Vatican sits on seven mountains right there in Italy. 
No. I'm not saying that, that the Catholic Church is uh, not part of the apostate church or not part of the whore of Babylon, but that's not what that passage is referring to. It's referring to kingdoms, consecutive kingdoms that will come um, as John explains that. So it's important to understand we don't take everything in a wooden literal sense. We take it in, in simply the sense it's supposed to be taken. Okay, number two. The second law is called the law of double reference. The law of double reference. This law, number uh, letter A, observes the fact that often a passage or a block of Scripture is speaking of two different persons or different events that are separated by a long period of time. And this is important in prophecy. I'll give you an example. In like Isaiah 9, it'll talk about the coming of the Messiah. But then right next to it in the next verse, it'll talk about and the government will be on his shoulders. You know the passage, uh, a child is, uh, a son is given, a child is born, a child is born, son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Between those two passages is the time period we live in, between the first coming and the second coming. So the law of double reference is you could be reading a passage in prophecy that references to two things. Another thing is a uh, passage that I would think of is Isaiah 9, 7. Isaiah 7 talks about the virgin birth in verse 14. But in verse 15 and 16, it refers to another child. So you don't want to lump them all together. Matthew correctly quotes verse 14 of Isaiah. But in Isaiah, he's not only referencing to the Messiah, but in verses uh, 15 and 16, he's referencing to the child that we were born to the prophet Isaiah through his wife. Because it's a time element of, of a sign uh, to King Ahaz uh, that the child that, that is born from Isaiah um, Assyria will be defeated by the time it's, it's eating curds and ways and, and before it knows right and wrong. That's not a reference to the Messiah. That's a reference to Isaiah's son that will be born. So in that passage, right back to back are two prophecies, one short term, one long term. That's what throws a lot of people off when they read things. The, law, the third law is the law of recurrence. This law states that, in fact, in some scriptures, three there exists a recording of the event followed by a second recording of the same event, giving more details to the first. Uh, it often includes two blocks of scripture. First block presents a description of the events that transpires in chronological sequence, like I talked about, and the followed by a second block dealing with the same event at the same period of time, but giving further details as to what transpires in the course of the event. Example, uh, the, the Battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then with the second reference, you'll see this is, um, is he's expanding on the first chapter. He's adding more details into what he gave. And typically what will happen is the, the pro prophetic writers will give the timing in the first chapter and then add details to the timing, if that makes sense. So what, what, he, what Ezekiel's doing in 38, he's giving you a chronological order there, and then he adds more stuff in in chapter 39. Moses did this. It's very well, very Jewish. When Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1 and then chapter 2, did you notice that there seems to be two Genesis accounts? A lot of the skeptics will say, see, there's two multiple writers. It's not, no, it's not multiple writers. It's very Jewish to do that. Give the chronology first and then add the details right behind it. So that's what Genesis chapter 2 does. It gives you more details, particularly about Adam and Eve, than chapter 1 does. Another example of this would be Matthew 24 and 25. 
Matthew 24 obviously talks about the 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 tribulation, uh, at least the, the from the abomination of desolation, and gives you uh, some details about what what transpires before that. And then Matthew 25 just kind of starts breaking more details out. And so you have uh, the law of recurrence. The third, the fourth law is the law of context. A text apart from its context is a pretext. So, letter A, a verse can only mean what it means in context and must not be taken out of its context. And that's important. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Your biggest help in when you're interpreting prophecy is to always remain in context. And what typically people do who have an agenda, typically, is take stuff out of context, remove it from its, its whole pericope or its whole block of scripture and take that verse out and then build a dogma around it instead of leaving it within the embedded context. So it's kind of like when you're doing with Dealing with real estate, it's, you know, location, location, location. Well, in scripture, it's context, context, context. That is the king of everything. Okay. So with the law of context, you have to remind yourself every time you're reading, this is Jewish. This is Jewish. This is Jewish. You will not get away from that. And you have to understand the culture. You have to understand We'll talk about later Jewish ways of interpreting. You have to understand why they said what they did. Because in English, it just doesn't translate. It's, you got to just know how the Hebrews talk. I'll give you an example. Uh, if I can remember off the top of my head. In Daniel chapter 11, it says about the Antichrist that he will not have the desire of women. Or he will not have the, yeah, basically something like that. In our Western minds, I guarantee you, by that phrase in English, I know what our people think are thinking. They, they inevitably make the wrong conclusion if they see the Antichrist is going to be homosexual. Right? He will not have the desire of women. And in, and in English, you would think, okay, that, yeah, maybe he's a homosexual. It's not, it's not, it's not that at all. The, what Daniel is employing is a Hebraism. Um, having the desire of women was a common understanding that every woman in Israel wanted to bear the Messiah based off of Genesis 3.15. They knew that one day one Jewish girl is going to have the blessing of bearing the Messiah. And that was a common thought among Jewish women that they wanted to possibly have the Messiah. Eve thought she did with Cain. She was, she was grieved what Cain did. She thought she mistakenly did that. But every Jewish woman wanted that. So when Daniel states that, what he is saying is he is not a follower of God. He is, uh, he, he is not Jewish. He, uh, he has nothing to do with the Bible. It doesn't mean anything about him being homosexual. It's that he has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. He's not related to that. So there's a lot of conjecture, but that all comes from not understanding Hebrew culture. 
and not understanding those figures of speech that they throw out, and we just get uh, messed up in English, and it gets taken out further than it should be taken. Okay, any questions on that? That's just four laws. Bob? Yes. The double reference. I know. That's that's what gave the rabbi such a fit, too, of the law of double reference in the fact that so many Old Testament passages were back-to-back with large gaps of time. That's why there's a blessing attached to prophecy and studying prophecy, is that it is that difficult. And... And because it's not a straightforward thing and that there are gaps and we just have to acknowledge that there are gaps. The reasons why are in God's timing. You'll see in Daniel chapter 9 between verses 26 and 27, major gap, major gap. And what you're starting to see is God has designed prophecy almost like a mosaic. And you have to be skilled enough to know where the parts fit. Chrono, uh, chronologically, but what you the question you've asked is the difficulty. That's the that's the difficulty, Bob. And and I I honestly God doesn't say why He does it that way. It would seem easier if if things were broken up and say, hey, by the way, there's going to be two thousand years between this one. That would be a lot. That would be a lot helpful. But as you can see, once that once that gets established by Moses, that there are gaps between when the prophecy is given and fulfillment, we start seeing a pattern here that God hopes to, uh, for us to understand that I might say stuff, but it comes to fruition at different times and even at different stages. Like with the Abrahamic covenant, um, the Abrahamic covenant is coming f- to fulfillment in stages. Some of it has been fulfilled, but it's progressive in its fulfillment. To one day, it will culminate in the kingdom age. It's currently being fulfilled now with the blessing of the Gentiles. And, and some parts of it, um, like that dealt with Abraham, came to fruition in his own personal life, too. His name would be great. And that's true. But what we see is a progression in the fulfillment. Therefore, with that precedent being set, you have to take that over and deal with it on other prophecies and, and, and always hold out that there's gaps in between. Because that seems to be an established pattern and we just have to accept it. I, maybe it has something to do with a demonic world. I don't know. One of the things I, I, I heard one time, I forget who said this, but the Bible is written in a certain way that it almost expects enemy interception. And the fact that you have prophecies uh, uh, strewn out all over the, the text of 66 books. Because if you lost a page or if you lost a book or something like that, you still could get the whole picture from the other books. It's just that spread out. And that, 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 that bringing it together like we are, it takes some skill to do it, but it almost just seems to be anticipating an enemy trying to mess it up. Because imagine if all the prophecy about the tribulation was in one book. And what do you think Satan would do to that? He would go after it and attack it. You know the book of Revelation was the last book to be included in the canon, and it wasn't because of the Bible believers. It was because of the liberal church. Satan was working through the liberal church at that time and trying to exclude it out. He didn't want that book in there. 
It's spelled as doom, basically. So I think with that, there's something there. Yeah. And that's the timing element. Was, there's always that, that wait on me element in, in the, the scriptures. Good point. And I will say this, there's a prophecy in Daniel in chapter 12 that kind of talks a little bit about what you guys are discussing. That in the end, they will seek the knowledge. In the, it doesn't say that the knowledge in your English, but in the Hebrew it's saying the knowledge. That in the last days, people would go to and fro seeking this knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge that Daniel was espousing in his prophecy. And it's true. It's, we're seeing this now, that those Bible-believing Christians that want to know what's going on around them are seeking prophecy out. And very few churches are even teaching it anymore. And because of that, there's a hunger, but there's a lack of finding it. And, 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 but yet, they're, as Daniel talked about, the understanding of it is now greater than it ever has been. We can really connect dots now. And we can see the gaps, and we can see, oh, there's a gap between even the first and second coming. We get that. That was a big gap that they didn't understand. That was a huge hurdle to get over for the Jews in the first century. But now, you know what the big gap that, that we have to try to explain? Because people don't believe it. Is the gap between the rapture and the second coming. That there is a two-stage second coming. It, or say, let me say it, two-phase second coming, the rapture, and then in the middle of that is a seven-year or even more than that uh, gap between the second coming. Because when you compare First, Thess uh, First Thessalonians chapter 4 with any second coming passage, you cannot equate the two. They're totally different events, and and you can't marry them. There's no way you can marry them. Therefore, it has to suggest a gap between the two events that we're looking at a two-phase second coming. Well, what doesn't that make sense? It follows that the coming of Messiah that was predicted, obviously looking back now, was in two phases. First coming, second coming. And then we take that principle and apply it to the second coming, and we start finding out the same thing applies to the second coming. There's two phases to it. One where he comes to the clouds, and one where he comes and touches the earth with the armies of heaven to destroy the Antichrist. And one where he takes us home. And so, those, there's, are the, there's the gap, but that comes through studying and looking at the events and saying, hmm, these don't equate. When they don't equate, that means they're a separate event. Something different going on. So you can't all lump it in. So that's just the, the genius of God, but the, the interpreter's challenge is to get through that and, and really understand that. It's hard sometimes. So those are the four. And the reason is, if you have a, a, a prophecy with a law, uh, with you have a law of double reference or a law of recurrence, it can mess you up. So I think what you're better look at is look at when Jesus or whoever or Daniel or, or John starts a new topic and stay with him until he finishes the topic. And then that will give you your block or the, the, the term is pericope. That's your pericope that you're working with, your block of information, and you stay with that. Because if you do a, 
a formula like five or ten or whatever, you're going to overlap into some areas that don't apply. And you'll get yourself messed up in a lot of ways. So you want to stay with the block that he's discuss, uh, discussing uh, and stay with the narrator's flow of thought. Because you can tell when he changes a flow of thought. Uh, let's go to page two, any more, if we don't have any more questions. <laughs> the outline of eschatology. Now, what we're talking about eschatology, when it talks about it, we have to begin with understanding dispensation. It's in the economy of time in which God deals with people differently. Salvation is always the same. But when we understand is a term called periodization. The early church taught periodization. The early church term for it was Killianism. Killianism. C-H, it's spelled. And Killianism understood what we call now dispensationalism or periodization, that in different periods of time, God dealt differently with people. He required different things, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of obedience and how he related to them. Obviously, with Israel, you the, the easiest ways to understand is you and I are very different than it was when in, in the days of Israel. That was a theocracy. We're not in a theocracy. And in a theocracy, there were certain rules in there that had to be obeyed. So you guys understand at least there's a different way of handling things under Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is now finished, and now we're in the law of the, of the Messiah, the law of Christ, in the church age. Well, this church age will end, too. And then we go into the millennial kingdom. The kingdom age is far different than the age we're used to. But even before that, there's the age of innocence with Adam and Eve in the garden. There were certain rules they had to obey. And some of those rules don't apply anymore. You don't have the rule of keep care of the garden and tend the garden. That rule doesn't apply because the Garden of Eden doesn't exist anymore. And so you have that age, you have the age of uh, 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 Noah's age and age of promise with Abraham. So we're, basically where we're at is in the, we're in the sixth dispensation to understand eschatology. or the, the, the sixth way God handles people. The cross, which ended the fifth dispensation, the dispensation of law, also began with the sixth, the dispensation of grace. The dispensation of grace is divided in two ages. You and I are in the dispensation of grace, the church age. But you have to understand there's two ages in it. I'll give you these charts later on, but the first, the first is the, the church age. I think I have that chart. Yeah, the fir your first uh, chart. And you can always, I'll, I'll, I'll always refer back to this to just kind of give you an idea, but it, it should say the church age at the top of it. That gives you a good broad perspective of where we're living. Obviously, you can see we're in the Laodicean era, and I'll talk about why these era eras are termed those ways, and we'll, we'll get into that later on. But this is the dispensation we're in. Again, though, there's two ages in the dispensation of grace. The first age is the age we're in. The second age is the tribulation. Okay, so you have those two ages in the dispensation of grace. The, the church age and the tribulation. Those are the two ages. It's important to understand that because the church is gone by the time the tribulation starts. So it's a different age, uh, a different age, 
even though it's in the age of grace. It's a, it's a subdivision. Okay, so if you go to letter E, viewed from the standpoint of the visible church, note what, what it, Fruchtenbaum is saying. The visible church, Christendom, that includes those who name the name of Christ and are not, those who, those who are apostate Christian churches, that includes the Catholic Church, Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons. Okay, that's the visible church, those who name the name of Christ. It began at Pentecost and will continue until the beginning of the tribulation period. That's important. Okay? View, uh, letter F, viewed from the standpoint of the invisible church, which is the remnant, the true believers of the church. It began at Pentecost and will continue until the rapture. So do you understand the difference between the visible church and the invisible church? If you are a true believer in Messiah, you're considered the invisible church, the remnant. The, vi- the or, sorry, the invisible church. The, invi- the, the visible church is everybody out there that claims to be a Christian and is not and includes you as well. But what will happen is the rapture will happen and take away the remnant. Take away true believers before the tribulation starts. All believers will be gone. Who will be left behind then? Christendom will be left behind. The visible church that named the name of Christ that were not truly believers. The Laodicean church, the Sardis church, the, the Thyatira church. Those who had the appearance of being alive, but they're dead. They're left behind. They continue on and exist until the tribulation starts. Then when the tribulation starts, the whore of Babylon takes her seat and she becomes the ruling religion on the planet. And that false church that's, that's now today will be gathered up underneath her, under her umbrella, along with uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, whatever. It'll all be incorporated underneath her as the false church gets incorporated into all false churches. Because, or sorry, false religions. Because the false church is a false religion. The true church is gone. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. And that's why it's important to keep categories in their categories. It's separate. Because otherwise it becomes a gobbledygook of stuff and you start mixing things that don't belong with each other. And, and that's why what, what, you know, once we're taken out of here in the rapture, what do you think they're going to say? Aliens got them somewhere. But see, because the other so-called quote-unquote Christians will still be on planet Earth. The Catholic Church will still be a, a, a there. Uh, the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, parts of the Seventh-day Adventists will still be here. Um, I mean, you think about all the cults that name the name of Christ. And two, those who sat next to you in the pew, who you thought were a brother and sister in the Lord, will not be in the rapture. They will be left behind. And so the world will say, well, look, there's a bunch of Christians still here. In fact, the majority of them are still here. It's just a small section of them were taken out. It was those, those weirdos, man. I couldn't stand. And they were, they were always in my face and telling me I need to get saved and they wouldn't chill out. They're gone now. Finally, we, now we can move forward, they'll say. 
But you see, that's what will happen. So then they continue and see, we don't know how long between the rapture and the tribulation. The tribulation doesn't start with the rapture. It's the signing of a peace covenant with Israel and Antichrist that starts that. So you could have the rapture and still have Psalm 83, Gog and Magog, and all kinds of other things going on before that. Or we could see that stuff and then be raptured after that. So the timing element is up to God, and we believe in the imminency that could happen tonight. Um, but nonetheless, the invisible church would be taken, the remnant church would be taken, and the false church would be left behind to be assumed into the whore of Babylon. Okay, G. The second age is the Great Tribulation, which I mentioned, which will last for seven years and will be the last seven years of the dispensation of grace. Okay? So, H, after a short interval following the Tribulation, the last seven years of the, dis of the dispensation of grace will be the seventh dispensation, the dispensation of the Messianic Kingdom for 1,000 years. I'll give you that chart uh, later on. Finally, there will be an internal order after that. By the way, uh, the eternal order, the only place in your Bible you'll find anything on eternity is Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about eternity. Uh, it, it talks about where God is and things like that, but John is the only one that opens that up about what eternity looks like with the new Jerusalem. Before then, I can tell you this, you look through all the Old Testament, from the messianic standpoint, they, they didn't think past the kingdom age. And here's the deal. They didn't know how long the kingdom age went for. They, you know, a lot of them would just assume that it went on forever. But you and I know how long does the messianic age last? A thousand years. So John is the one who finally puts a number to it. And he says it, I think, six times. In that passage, it's a thousand years, a thousand years. They ruled with him for a thousand years. And so he's defining that the Messianic age lasts, lasts 1,000 years, and then we go into eternity. And really then the only thing you know about eternity is what you read in Revelation 21 and 22. Nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about what eternity is like. So that's very interesting. Um, so anyway, last thing, section, and we'll finish. The book of Revelation. This will be our base of understanding. The purpose of the work is to study the whole scope of biblical prophecy, which involves much more than just the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation will serve as a base. I want you to see this outline. Look at the outline that John gives in Revelation about it being the base of operation. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So you can notice in that verse, it's dividing the book of Revelation, into sections. Now, this is unique. He says, you know, the things that John saw, the things that are right now currently going on in the church age, and the things that will be So now and future. The book of Revelation is the book that finally puts things in sequential order. It's, the, it's, it's finally, when John writes the book of Revelation, which is a continuance of Daniel, Daniel was told to seal up. John is now revealing. And it's continuing of Daniel. And what he revealed for the first time was the sequence of the Great Tribulation. They all knew about the Great Tribulation. They knew it was seven years. They knew, they knew it was going to be horrible. And they knew there was all kinds of these different things going on in there. But they didn't know where to place them. 
So it's kind of jumbled up. So John comes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and finally gives us a template of what that seven years looked like. And then because of that template, we can go back to the Old Testament and start that mosaic process of putting the pieces where they need to be. This is why it's key for the book of Revelation. That's, that's going to serve as our base. And that's what the book of Revelation does. Now, notice the book of Revelation. Um, it, it says uh, in, in the introduction of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, I want you to read this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Underline the word shortly. I'm going to explain that. It's in take or taco. Think about like eating a taco. Um, Intake is the Greek word. And he sent and signified by his angel and his servant John and bore witness of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things he saw. Blessed is he. Notice this right here. Is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. And that word in the Greek is egun. Egu. That word egu, and then you have el intake. Shortly and near is not a reference to that when John gave the prophecy in 95 AD that it will take place right after he talks about it. It's not what it's talking about. It is talking about imminency. And it's talking about when these things start they will happen very rapidly. I mentioned that with the book of Nahum, that when God judges, he judges very quickly. And so this idea of near and and it's, it's uh, shortly, it just simply means soonness. It's imminent. That once it starts, it's, it, it goes real quick, seven years. And, and so... A lot of people misunderstand those things and say, see, it must, it must have happened before 7 AD. Well, it's funny that you say it happened before 7 AD because he wrote this in 95 AD. How could it happen in 7 AD? We got problems here. And then you have attacks of people saying, well, um, it's been 2000 years. It doesn't seem like it's near. It doesn't seem like it's, it's close what he's saying. Again, you've got to go back to your Greek. It's, it, the English is not doing justice to it. It just simply means it's imminent. That prophecy is imminent. No matter what you're studying, it all, it can happen at any moment and start. And when the system starts, it goes fast. But here's what I want to end on. Blessed is he who reads and uh, reads these things. The book of Revelation is the only book that tells you when you study prophecy that you get a blessing. It's an optional blessing. It's a conditional blessing. I wonder why it's attached to the book of Revelation or any prophecy whatsoever. Why do you think God would give a special blessing to believers studying prophecy? Okay. Okay. Historically, I want to add something so, so you can add, get the question, or maybe answer the question. Historically, 
Prophecy is the least studied of all theology. The early church, because it got taken over by liberals, didn't want the book of Revelation even into the canon. They finally allowed it, but then they allegorized it to death. And for centuries, the book of Revelation, Daniel, all these prophecy books have been buried and no one taught them. And then now recently, they're starting to be taught. But again, once now they're starting to be taught, now we're getting a pushback from the evangelical community not to teach it anymore. You've got pastors like Rick Warren and the ex-pastor Mark Driscoll telling us not to teach prophecy. That's irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. They'll use Acts 1 and say, Jesus told the disciples, hey, don't concern yourself with the second coming. Don't, don't concern yourself with that. We've got other things to do. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. So what's happening now is the breakout of, of eschatology and people studying it, but then the suppression comes again. So you study this. You're part of, of the remnant, a very small group that actually does study it. Most of the churches don't touch it. The pastors won't preach on it. They don't know it. They don't know how to teach it. And therefore, their congregations are spiritually ignorant of theology. Uh, good point. Uh, Second Timothy. Paul told Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8. There's a crown given to believers who long for the second coming. Now, wait a second. Why would Paul single out to Timothy, hey man, there's a special reward for those who look for prophecy, who look to the Lord's coming. Why would they get a special crown? Because you know why? Most believers don't. They're only concerned about the here and now. They're not looking forward to the second coming. They're looking to, to build their kingdom here on this earth. They're more concerned about their life here and now. That's why they go to churches that teach them the here and now. Have your best life today. Every day is Friday. Yada, yada, yada. They go to churches that teach them self-help stuff and don't teach them about the coming Messiah. Therefore, because it's so rarely taught, and I think God expected this, that only certain believers would study and have a hunger for the second coming, they get a special crown over other believers. So God bless you for studying because you will, because you studied eschatology, get a special crown for you. Now, interesting, it says, um, blessed are those who read and, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Keep, what do you mean by keeping those things written in it? It's not so much commands. There's not a lot of commands in, in, in Revelation. It's just judgment, judgment, judgment. You know what that means? It means this, that once you understand what Revelation is teaching, what Daniel's teaching, what prophecy is teaching, then you know how to go and apply it to the world around you and see God's hand bring this together. What's that? Which we do see. And I'm telling you, because you study prophecy, you know what's going on. You know why ISIS is doing and why the Middle East is messing up, why, why we're turning our backs on Israel. Other Christians cannot see that. That's why there's a special blessing attached to it, because you spiritually see God's plan and purposes going on around you. And the rest of the Christian world doesn't. They're, they're completely spiritually ignorant of this going on around them.
They have no clue why the United States is turning its back on Israel. They have no clue. Because you just say, hey, you know that? And they go, huh, I'm watching Dancing with Stars, man. Leave me alone, dude. Um, I want to see this guy dance or whatever it is. I want to play my video game. And I'm 45 years old playing a video game at 2 in the morning. Right? They're out. They checked out. They've checked out. And so they became, I call, the walking spiritual zombies of Christianity. And they've checked out. You, though, because you study prophecy, you become spiritually aware. You're the most in tune people on the face of the planet because you know where the game is heading. You know where the plays are going to make. You know who the players are. And you know the next move before they make it. Yes, it is. It's a great evangelism. Oh, yeah. I was listening to Tommy Ice. Have you ever listened to Tommy Ice? He's great guy. Um, and he was at a, a conference. And he told everyone in that conference, raise your hand if you got saved by the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And everyone at the conference almost raised their hand. Because it was such a witness, a powerful witness, because of eschatology and, 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 and prophecy, it gets people saved. And so when you relate to, hey, this thing's going on here, the Bible predicted this, you know, the technology, whatever it is, Mark of the Beast, boom, it opens doors. Like, how did you know that? So it, it's, you're right, Kenny, it's a good evangelism tool, very good evangelism tool. Anything else? Yes, yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah. And that's what most people think. But prophetically, you're right on. If you go to Ezekiel 38 and 39, Sheba and Dedan are Saudi Arabia. And along with them and the young lions of Western Europe, including us, Canada, uh, Great Britain, Spain, we take a role of non-intervention when Russia and Iran attack Israel for the spoils and plunder that Israel has, the wealth of Israel, which probably will come from Psalm 83. And so we're watching the players get in place. We're, the, the idea that we would ever take a position that we would never defend Israel in the face of Russia attacking, I believe it now. I, it doesn't take a lot of faith. I see it right now. That's the position we are in right now. And prophetically, that's what God said would happen. So what it does for the believer who's studying this it solidifies your faith, man. It makes you strong in understanding. You can trust God. He said, he's going to happen this way. And sure enough, it's happening that way. So anything God says, it does happen. And therefore, that builds our trust. That builds our hope. And so prophecy, they say, well, it scares people. No, it doesn't. You know what prophecy does? It not only gives you a hope, but it creates you in you an ability to live cleaner. And and why do I say that? Because the admonition in scriptures is Peter or whoever will always make a reference. We need to live right because he's coming. That's kind of the general principle. And the idea is like you're having a visitor come to your house and they're going to stay at your house. What do you do before they come? You clean your house. You're just not going to have the visitor come in and say, yeah, I haven't cleaned the toilet in two weeks, but hey, uh, you don't do that. You know you're going to be down there on your knees scrubbing that toilet for that visitor. 
and, and, and get that mold off the bath tile and all that stuff, you know. Okay. The same thing applies spiritually. When you have this expectation of imminency, it's near, it's soon, it could happen today. You live differently, man. Versus the churches that, that, that tell you live for now and don't have that, it, they, they, they lose their focus, man. They start worrying about today and building my empire and my kingdom. What are the things we can do and have a, you know, uh, and not focus in on what's important. They lose priority, I guess. So, eschatology and prophecy keeps your priorities straight, keeps you clean, it keeps you ready to meet him in, uh, if he should come tonight. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, Please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our Redemption Dolls Mirror. God bless.